I don't know if you remember a number of years ago on the American stage, a guy named Jesse the Body Ventura, one time naval officer turned pro wrestler turned governor of Minnesota, never shy about expressing his opinions. When asked what he thinks of religion, he stated, organized religion is a crutch and a sham for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. Wow, that was not the best move he could make politically. Uh, But actually, Jesse is expressing an opinion that is not unusual. That view has been around for a long time, most famously articulated by the father of socialist and communist thought, Karl Marx, wrote in 1843, that religion is the opiate of the masses. It is the drug that numbs the pain of the common man. Uh, That's actually a view that my dad held for much of his life. My dad grew up believing that that religion, it it was an okay thing, but at the end of the day, all religions, and Christianity in particular, was really nothing more than a crutch for the weak and needy. And and it was good in that sense. It gave them comfort, but it it really had nothing to offer you if you were not weak and needy. And my dad didn't feel weak and needy. He was smart. He had a lot of common sense. He was successful. He was strong. He had nothing but but opportunity in front of him. And so my dad concluded, well, since I am not weak, since I am not needy, Christianity really has nothing to offer me. It is just a crutch for the weak and needy. And since I am not weak and needy, I don't need it. Is that true? Have you guys ever heard somebody say that, that Christianity or religion in general is a crutch for the weak? When somebody says that, how do you respond? What do we say to that charge? Well, I'd like to try to answer that question this morning from the book of Isaiah. And we're going to do something a little different in Isaiah. You don't actually need to turn there. Um, In previous weeks, we have studied massive passages of Isaiah, like at least a chapter, if not five chapters at a time. This morning, we're going to do something different. We're going to focus on just one word. One word from the book of Isaiah that will help us to answer that charge against Christianity. We read that word last week, Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. The word I want to focus on is this one, Redeemer. Isaiah calls God, it's a name for God or a title, he calls God Redeemer 13 times and he uses the verb to redeem of God 12 times in his book. And actually Isaiah is not alone, throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New, Redeemer, Redemption, uh, these are common words for God. Common words to describe what God does for the human race. He redeems, he is the Redeemer. That's core to our Christian faith. At the center of our Christian faith is the concept that God is our redeemer. But what does that actually mean? What is redemption all about? Uh, It's a, a common word in Jewish society. It's actually two words. If you look at the Old Testament, that's where we'll start, just the Old Testament. Two words that are translated redeemer or redemption or redeem, ga'al and pada, they basically overlap in meaning and they were really common in Jewish society and especially in the structure of Jewish families. You see, redemption is what you did for the poor and needy in your own family. Give you a few examples that we pull from the Old Testament. Redemption was a common idea. If you had a relative who was desperately poor, so poor that he had to go sell his house to pay his debts, then redemption is when you stepped up and bought his house back from its new owners to rescue him from homelessness. 
The common idea of redemption in the Old Testament. You step up and pay his debts to get his house or his field or his land back to rescue him from homelessness. Uh, Another example that's commonly used, sometimes your relative was so poor that his house wouldn't do, he actually had to sell himself to pay his debts. That was a common thing in the ancient world. It was called debt slavery. Well, in that case, redemption is that you step up and you emancipate your poor relative by paying off his debts. You set him free from slavery by paying off all that he was owed. That's a common uh, theme in redemption in the Old Testament. Third example, let's say that your, your brother is married, doesn't have kids yet, and he dies. Well, now the woman he leaves behind, his childless widow, in the ancient world, she would be absolutely desperate. There were no social structures to take care of her. She could not go work. She would be um, absolutely poor. She would be absolutely helpless and vulnerable. And so redemption was when you stepped up and married the widow. You brought her into your home. You rescued her from poverty, from helplessness. That's a common uh, theme actually in the book of Ruth. The whole book of Ruth is about this idea. You have Ruth. She marries a Jewish man who dies and leaves her poor and destitute. She has no hope in the world until Boaz steps up. And Boaz becomes her kinsman redeemer. It's a title in the Old Testament. He redeems her from poverty by marrying her. See, there's some of the common ways that this term redeem or redemption are used in the Old Testament, and they give us a sense of what it means that God is our redeemer. What does it mean that God redeems us? The basic idea of redemption or redeem is to deliver or liberate someone from a desperate situation. To deliver or liberate or emancipate someone from a desperate situation. There may be a price involved. You may have, a, have to pay a price to redeem them or you may not. Um, regardless, redemption is always a third party stepping in. Person can't redeem themselves. They're helpless for that. So a third party steps in and rescues them. Most common redeemer in the Old Testament is God. The word is usually used of him. And throughout the Old Testament, God redeems people from four different desperate situations. Four main situations that people in the Old Testament faced that God stepped in and offered redemption. The first one that we see is slavery. This is a whole book of Exodus. The Israelites are slaves in the nation of Egypt. And to these slaves, here's what God does. Deuteronomy 7, 8. Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So in his strength, in his might, God steps in and he rescues, he emancipates his people from slavery by pouring out the 10 plagues upon the nation of Egypt. So that's first, actually probably most common use of redemption of God in the Old Testament, from slavery. Second, God redeems people from their enemies. Okay, Psalm 106.10. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. This is simply God rescuing a person from those who want to do them harm. Also very common. Third use of redemption. Uh, God redeems people from the threat of death, from imminent death. Job 5.20. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. God steps in and redeems or rescues his people from the threat of imminent death through famine or warfare or whatever it might be. Finally, fourth common thing that God redeems people from in the Old Testament, the exile. That's actually the context of what we've been reading in the book of Isaiah. From Isaiah 40 through 55, Isaiah is writing to a future audience who would be exiles in the nation of Babylon. And to be in exile, what that was is that a nation came in and conquered your nation, put you in cuffs and chains, and forcibly led you away to another place to live. 
And if you left that place and tried to return home, they'd simply kill you. Exile was forced. And so God, through Isaiah, is speaking to these exiles in Babylon. They cannot return home. God promises to them, Isaiah 48, 20, go forth from Babylon, free from the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. God promises to redeem them from exile, to restore them back to their homeland. So you look at the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, God is all about the business of redemption. He is redeeming people from desperate situations, including slavery, enemies, threat of death, and exile. What I want you to notice about what we've seen so far of redemption, look at the definition. Look at how the definition ends. Our definition of biblical redemption assumes that a person is in a desperate situation. Redemption just de facto is always and only for those who are desperate. Redemption is for those who are helpless. For people who cannot help themselves, God offers to step in and redeem. So that brings us back to my dad's charge against Christianity. 30 years ago when he charged, Christianity is just a crutch for the weak and needy. Well, we studied redemption and it looks like that's true. Redemption, which is at the heart of Christianity, is only for those who are desperate, those who are weak and needy. So what about guys like my dad? who who everything is together in their life. They're doing well, they're successful, they're strong. They don't seem to need any help. What do they need to be redeemed from? What do they have to gain from Christianity? Well, to answer that question, we're gonna go to the New Testament because the New Testament goes into much greater depth about our need for redemption. And I want us to ask the question in the New Testament, what does God offer to redeem people from? What is God's redemption in the New Testament? What is it that we, modern Americans, who are not slaves of any other nation, we're not exiles, most of us are not facing imminent death, what do we need to be redeemed from? Now, that's, that's what I want us to focus on. What does God offer to redeem us from? We're going to start with the most serious answer to that question, the most significant thing that God offers to redeem modern Americans and all human beings from, and that is the penalty of sin. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. While you're turning there, I'm actually going to take you back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah actually gives us a hint about this type of redemption. It's really interesting. Only two places in the entire Old Testament is there any mention made that God will redeem people from sin. Isaiah has one of those. Isaiah 44, 22, God says through Isaiah, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Really interesting. God just talked about redeeming them from their exile in Babylon and then God concludes by promising a different kind of redemption. A redemption that removes their sin. I think what God is revealing here is, guys, Israel, actually, your real problem is not that you're exiles in Babylon. That's not the biggest deal. That's not the ultimate issue. Your biggest issue is sin. In fact, it's your sin, your idolatry in particular, that led to the exile. Me freeing you from Babylon, that's not nearly as big a deal as what I'm really going to do. I'm going to wipe away your sins. That is your biggest problem, your sin. It's a problem we all share. All human beings do. You've read this passage many times before, Romans 3.23. Look with me there. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By all, he means literally all. All of humanity, accepting Jesus Christ, has sinned, and he defines sin there. It's falling short of God's glorious standard of righteousness. God has revealed what is right, what is proper. We have all violated that standard. 
Now that's actually self-evident when you look through scripture to define the concept of sin. The Bible uses lots of words for sin. When you wrap them all together, this is what God means by sin. Sin is any lack of conformity to the revealed moral standard of God. Sin is anything that falls short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. And that definition of sin includes our actions, our words, our thoughts, and even our motives. Okay, so notice, you can, you can do the right thing, but if you do it for the wrong reason, it's still sin. Okay, because sin includes everything. Actions, words, thoughts, even our motives. Okay, and sin includes both intentional and unintentional violations. Even if you do the wrong thing by accident, still it is sin. And sin includes both sins of commission and sins of omission. It's not enough to just not do the bad stuff. If you don't do all the good stuff that God wants you to do, that is sin. So by the biblical definition of sin, clearly all of us have sinned. All human beings accepting Jesus Christ have fallen short of this definition of sin. Now actually, most Americans would probably agree with that statement. Now they will probably define sin differently. They'll focus it more narrowly. It's just the big stuff. Lying, cheating, stealing, being selfish. But even by their more narrow definition, still most people would admit, yeah, I've sinned if that's what you want to call it. I've done bad things. But they assume it's no big deal. Sure, I've sinned, but my sin's no big deal. I'm not that bad a guy. I've not murdered anyone. I'm not like Hitler. I'm basically a pretty good guy. Most Americans assume that sin is not really a big deal. What does God's word say about it? Well, look with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What Paul is telling us is that the penalty that any and every sin deserves, whether we think it's a small sin or we think it's a big sin, the penalty of any and every sin is the wrath of God. Now, we talked about that at the beginning of the semester, the wrath of God. God's wrath is his just anger in action. It is his just anger poured out upon human sin. Wrath is God's justice in action. Remember, God is the perfectly just judge of heaven and earth. He is always righteous. He is always making things right. He must declare or deliver just judgments. And what Paul is revealing to us is the just judgment of sin is the wrath of God. That's what sin deserves. That's what sin must have is the wrath of God. That is justice upon human sin. And that wrath will not be mild and it will not be temporary. Book of Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, remember last week we are all idolaters, and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Book of Revelation is telling us that the wrath of God results in the second death. It is an eternal thing. It is described as a lake of fire and burning sulfur. That is the just consequence, the penalty of human sin. Now, that's a reality that most of us don't like to think about. Most of us read this passage, and and to be honest, it turns our stomach. This is a painful passage. We don't want to think about this. This is horrible. And yet, the clear, authoritative teaching of Scripture is that the just penalty of sin is eternal wrath of God. If a person continues in their rejection of God throughout this life, they will end up under his wrath for all eternity. And let's be clear, they're not there because God wants them there. 
1 Timothy chapter 2 is very clear. God desires all men to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. No one will end up in hell because God was deficient in love or compassion for them. God loves all human beings. He reveals himself to all human beings. And yet God must be just. He is holy, holy, holy. He must set the universe right. And if a person continues in their rejection of God throughout this life, the just penalty of sin is eternal wrath from God in a very real place called the lake of fire. So, Americans are wrong. Sin is not a small deal. Any and every sin is a huge deal. It could not be a more serious deal. Every sin brings upon itself the eternal wrath of God. So my dad, he did not need deliverance or redemption from slavery to another nation. And he didn't need redemption from exile. And he didn't need redemption from imminent death. He actually, he needed redemption from something far more serious. From the eternal wrath of God. That's what all human beings need. What they need most, uh, most out of all, what we need above all else, is God's redemption, his deliverance from his just wrath, from the penalty of our sin. Now, thank God, 30 years ago, my dad uh, wised up. He realized that he did need something from God, that he needed this, that he needed to be delivered from the just penalty of his sin, from the wrath of God upon sin. My dad turned in faith to Jesus Christ. That's actually what Paul tells us, is that there is a solution to this problem. There is a solution to the penalty of sin. We can be redeemed and delivered from sin through Jesus. Look with me again at Romans 3. Let's read again, 323. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 323, that's the bad news. 324 is the good news. All have sinned, all deserve the wrath of God, but verse 24, we are justified as a gift, as a free gift that comes through the redemption, the release, the freedom that Jesus has provided for us. Jesus has provided redemption to all human beings. All of us can be free of the wrath of God. We can be justified. That's what redemption brings, justification. That's a a big word that simply means to declare someone righteous. We are unrighteous, just as a matter of fact. We are unrighteous people, and yet God promises he will declare us eternally righteous through the redemption of Christ. Jesus has made it possible for God to declare us righteous. How did he do that? Keep reading with me, verses 25 through 26. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How has Jesus redeemed us from the wrath of God? How has he secured this redemption? Well, through propitiation, another big theology word with a really simple definition. Propitiation is simply to satisfy the wrath of God. God must pour out wrath upon sin. And so in love and in grace, Jesus stepped up in front of us. He stepped up in our place and took the brunt of the wrath of God on our behalf. He took the punishment that we deserved on our behalf. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He shed his blood to satisfy the wrath of God. Why? So that God could be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. That's one of the most beautiful phrases in Greek, just and justifier. God is holy and yet he can still declare unholy people to be holy because Jesus died for us. And how do we receive that gift of redemption? Simply through faith. Simply through the belief that Jesus really did take our punishment in our place. 
The moment that you receive, the moment that you believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, you receive the gift of redemption. You are freed from the wrath of God. You will never sit under God's wrath if you have trusted in the death of Jesus in your place. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, if you're here this morning and there has been anything in your life that has kept you from believing that good news, if there's anything from keeping you from believing that that Jesus died for your sins, paid for all of your sins, and that you can have eternal life if you simply believe in his death and resurrection, if there's anything keeping you back from that, I want to beg you to come talk to me or someone else here this morning. Come talk to us. We may not be able to answer all your questions, but at least ask. Come talk to us because there's nothing more important that you will ever do than to consider what Jesus Christ has done for you. Because until you receive his redemption, you are still under the penalty of of your sins. You are still under the wrath of God. Come talk to us about the gospel. I'm so grateful that 30 years ago, my dad wised up to this truth. He saw that he desperately needed God's redemption from the penalty of sin. That he could not save himself, that he was a sinner under God's punishment. And so he believed that Jesus died for him that moment my dad was redeemed. First and most significant thing that the human race needs to be redeemed from is the penalty of sin. That's what God offers us through Jesus Christ. Freedom from his wrath. Freedom from an eternity in a real place called the lake of fire. First and most serious thing, but scripture doesn't end there. There is more that God wants to redeem the human race from. Because we human beings are not just in bondage to the penalty of our sins. We are also in bondage to the power of sin. I want you to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to look at the words of Jesus and, and what Jesus is going to say here about the subject of sin is, is radically countercultural. It flies in the face of everything we assume to be true as Americans. Okay, Jesus wants us to understand the reality of sin. Look at John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? These guys are kind of like my dad. Jesus says, I'm offering you redemption. I'm offering you freedom. And they respond, why would I need that? I'm not a slave of someone. The Jews were not slaves at this time in their history. They assume, Jesus, we don't need your redemption. How does Jesus respond? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Well, just put together the logical pieces. Who has sinned? Everybody except Jesus. So everybody who's ever lived except Jesus is the slave of sin. Jesus' point is you guys aren't free. You, you think you are not slaves. You are slaves. You're not slaves of the Babylonians or the Egyptians anymore. Actually, you're experiencing a worse kind of slavery because your master, he lives inside of you. It's sin at work in you. And when Jesus teaches this lesson, his point is not that when you commit sins, you become a slave of sin. His point is you have and, you have and will always be a slave of sin. Your, your sin nature, the sin within you, it expresses itself in sins. You sin because you're a slave of sin. We need to make an important distinction here in the words of Jesus. He wants them to understand the difference between sins, plural, and sin, singular. Sins, plural. That's the bad stuff we do. Those are the actions, the words, the thoughts, the motives that are disobedient to God. That's sins. Those are serious. They bring upon us the wrath of God. Those are serious, but they're actually just the symptoms of our real problem. 
Sins results from the real problem, sin singular. When Jesus talks about sin in the singular, he is personifying sin. He is speaking of it as if it is a person who has mastery over you. A master who lives inside of you and leads your life and moves your life towards sin. A cruel master at work in you. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. We commit acts of sins because we are ruled by sin. A master inside of us bending us towards sin. Paul makes a similar point. Ephesians chapter 2. He says of the human race, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. All human beings are born dead in trespasses and sins. Dead in sin. What does that mean? Well, dead means powerless here. Paul's saying we human beings, all of us are born powerless against sin. We cannot resist sin. All the choices that we make in life, we're simply choosing between different sins. We're not choosing between sin and righteousness because none of us can do what's right. We are slaves of sin. We are powerless against sin. We can do nothing but sin. That's why he will say in the book of Romans 3, 10 through 12, it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. There is not a single human being who by nature does good. All of us, all the time, by nature, when we do what comes natural to us, it is always sin. It is always bad. We can do nothing but sin. Sin infects everything that we do. I remember sitting in senior English class when I was in high school, and we read a bunch of philosophy and Greek mythology. I don't remember the particular book that brought it up, but I remember our, our teacher asking the class, are human beings basically good or basically bad? Now, I had grown up in church. I'd studied these passages. So the, the answer was self-evident to me. Of course, we're, we're basically bad. That's, that's Paul's whole point. Um, it was self-evident to me, but to no one else. <laughs> I was the only person in the class who raised his hand on that side. Everyone else expressed the opposite opinion. It was self-evident to them that, of course, human beings are born good. Look at babies. Look at kids. We're all born good. We're basically good. That's the American belief system. We're basically good. All we need is a, a little education, a little help to point us in the right way, and we'll be the good people that we are by heart. That's a very optimistic view of human nature that unfortunately is not at all biblical. God is very clear. Human beings are not basically good. We are basically evil. From the moment of our birth, we are bent towards sin because we are slaves of sin. Sin lives within us like a master that cruelly points us towards itself. We sin because we're slaves of sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature, sinners by heart. Everything we do is affected by sin. That's the theological word called depravity. We are depraved by birth. Depravity doesn't mean that humans are as bad as they could possibly be. It means that because Adam chose sin, all of his descendants, us included, are bent towards sin. All of his descendants, other than Jesus Christ, are owned by sin. Sin infects every part of our human nature. Everything we do is tainted by sin. All human beings are born in bondage to sin. So yeah, my dad was not the the slave of some other person. He was a worse kind of slave. He was a slave of sin. A master living inside of himself who he desperately needed redemption from. And fortunately, God offers that redemption through Jesus Christ. Paul says, Romans 6, 6 through 7, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, 
in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Here's, here's how Paul is conceiving of this. When we are born, we get a birth certificate. Well, we get a birth certificate like an actual physical one, but you could think of it, we also get kind of like a heavenly birth certificate, if you will, a birth certificate that lists out who owns us. All human beings accepting Jesus Christ, when we're born, a birth certificate is filled out that says we are legally owned by sin. From the moment of our birth, we belong to sin. And the only way for that ownership to end is for us to die, for that birth certificate to be canceled. Once we die, sin's legal hold on us is gone. The great news is the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, God joins you to Jesus. What he experienced is credited to you, including his death. That's the amazing news. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, in the eyes of God, you died. At that moment, your life ceased to be. You began a new life, a life free from sin. The moment that you died in Jesus, sin's legal ownership of you ended. You are no longer a slave of sin. It has no claim to your life. Now you belong to Jesus. He is your new master. A new birth certificate has been filled out and Jesus is the owner of that one. That's the great news. The moment you accept Jesus Christ for the first time in your life, you have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. Before that moment, your only option was to choose between sins. That's the only option you had. You could choose sin A or sin B, but that's all you could do. Now you have a new option. You can choose not to sin. You can choose to obey God. Now we're still tempted by sin because our human nature, our innate desires are still bent towards sin. When we as believers do what comes natural, it's sin, but now we have a choice. We can rely upon Jesus's power at work in us through the Holy Spirit and we can obey him for the first time in our lives because Jesus redeems us from slavery to sin. He has redeemed us from the power of sin, not just its penalty, but also its power. Now those are the two biggest things that God offers to redeem human beings from, the penalty of sin and the power of sin. I've used up most of my time on those because those are the big ones, but just for the sake of completeness, we'll cover the two others that the New Testament walks us through. Human beings are not just born under the penalty of sin and under the power of sin. We are also born in bondage to Satan. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we read the first verse, but let's move on to the next. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's just a figurative title for Satan and for the demonic kingdom of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience, that's all unbelievers. They are owned by disobedience, by sin. Paul is saying Satan is at work in them. He is working inside of them, whether they realize it or not. He is leading them in bondage towards sin. Similar thing Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. God, the one true God, he is sovereign. And yet for a time until Jesus returns, The one true God is allowing Satan, the false God, to rule over this world. This world belongs to Satan for now. And the way that Satan rules over this world is through spiritual blindness. He blinds his captives. He puts a veil over their eyes so that they cannot comprehend the truth of the gospel. They cannot comprehend that most important truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. Satan holds all unbelievers under his captive veil. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't understand a lot of true things. There's a lot of unbelievers who are incredibly smart, 
They know a ton of stuff. Many of them know a ton of stuff about the Bible. They just don't know the most important thing. They don't understand the gospel because Satan blinds them. He holds them as his captives. They are witless, blind captives of Satan from the day of their birth. We human beings cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot emancipate ourselves from slavery to Satan because he is far stronger than us. Fallen angels, they are way stronger than any of us. We can't redeem ourselves, but God offers to redeem us yet again through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1, For he that is God rescued us from the domain of darkness, that's the kingdom of Satan, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The moment that you trust in Jesus as your savior, all this crazy stuff happens. All in an instant, Jesus sets you free from the penalty of sin. He sets you free from your slavery to sin. He also sets you free from bondage to Satan. He takes you out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan. He redeems you, he emancipates you from it and delivers you into his own family the moment that you believe. That's the only way out of the kingdom of Satan. No human being has the strength. Only Jesus can redeem us from the grasp of Satan. That's the third thing that God offers to redeem us from. The fourth is bondage to death. The psalmist laments, Psalm 49, 7 through 9, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. The point that the psalmist is making is, Death is inescapable. None of us can rescue ourselves from death. Our bodies are going to die. We are going to decay. And there's nothing that we can do about that. But good news, verse 15, God offers to do something about it. But God will redeem my soul or literally my life from the power of Sheol, that is the grave, for he will receive me. God promises he will be the one to redeem us from death. Paul says a similar thing, Romans 8. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Redemptions of our our bodies. This kind of redemption is different than the other three in that we haven't experienced it yet. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have already been redeemed from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and captivity to Satan, but your body is still destined for death. Your body is still falling apart and decaying. You're growing old. You're going to die. But God promises death will not win. Death will not be the final word for you because I will resurrect you. That's what this is a promise of, resurrection. If Jesus returns before you die, I will will just transform you. It'll be a resurrection without death. It'll be awesome. If you die before Jesus returns, then, then you'll be with Jesus in heaven, but you'll be without a body until he returns, and then I'm going to give you a perfected body back. Death will not have the final word for you. That's the promise of resurrection. God promises to redeem us from death. Okay, so God in the New Testament reveals that he is the redeemer for all humanity. He redeems us from the penalty of sin, power of sin, bondage to Satan, and bondage to death. And that gives us what we need to go back to the charge we began with, the question that we began with. What do you do when someone says Christianity is just a crutch for the weak and helpless? How do you respond to that? Someone levels that charge against Christianity. What do you say? Well, here's what I say. Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. And thank God it is because I need a crutch and so do you. We are absolutely weak and helpless and needy. Look at what we just studied. You can't get any more desperate than this. You can't get any weaker. You can't get any more needy. Slavery to another nation, that is nothing compared to the eternal wrath of God. 
It cannot get more desperate than this. We all need a crutch. And in fact, Christianity is not a crutch. It is the crutch. It is the one and only hope for the human race. It is the one and only thing that can set us free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, bondage to Satan and bondage to death. Christianity is our only hope. The other religions, all the things of this world like money, education, fame, none of those things can do anything for us in redeeming us from the things that really matter. In setting us free from these, from these horribly desperate situations, only Christianity can do that. Nothing else can. No other religion, none of the things of this world can redeem us from sin, Satan, and death. Okay, and if we really want to be accurate, let's say Christianity is really not a crutch. Really, it's a defibrillator. Okay, because the human race, it's not like we've sprained our ankle. We're on the floor stone cold dead without God. We are absolutely lost, hopeless. We are slaves of death and Satan. We are under the power of sin and we are in danger of the eternal wrath of God in a real place called the lake of fire, if not for God's redemption. Christianity is a defibrillator. It is God's gift of life to those who are absolutely dead. You can't get any more helpless than the human race. We are absolutely desperate for the redemption of God. Every single one of us, even Jesse Ventura, he is not as strong as he thinks he is. He is desperately helpless without the redemption of God. I'm so thankful that 30 years ago, my dad understood that. He realized, is Christianity a crutch for the weak and helpless? Yes, it is, and I am one. Christianity is a crutch for the helpless, and all of us need a crutch because all of us are helpless. So my dad turned to Jesus Christ, and he experienced the redemption that only comes through him. He experienced the words of Jesus Further down in John 8, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Free from the wrath of God, free from slavery to sin, free from bondage to Satan, free from bondage to death. God wants to set you free in every way, and it comes through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you have never received that good news, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, again, come talk to me. You need to realize the only way to be free The only way to experience deliverance from these things is to believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. And for the rest of us who have trusted that message, I want to point you to an application of this sermon that's coming in a few weeks. We have a really neat opportunity to act on this sermon. If we believe that Christianity is the only crutch, in truth, the only defibrillator for the human race, then we need to share that good news, that news of redemption, and we have an opportunity for you, our annual Easter extravaganza. The evening of Thursday, April 21st. This is our yearly opportunity. We open the doors here at Southwood. We invite all the neighborhoods, all our friends, our family to come out to Southwood. And and we have lots of fun things. We have pizza, face painting, bounce houses, Easter egg hunts. We present the gospel. We give them an opportunity to hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. Let me challenge you. If you're a believer here this morning, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about who are some people you can invite. Maybe it's some friends of yours, co-workers, neighbors, family who don't know Jesus. Maybe it's friends of your kids. Your kids are a great evangelistic tool. (laughs) Have them invite their their friends who don't know the Lord to come out to the Easter extravaganza. It's not for us. This event is not at all for us. We should come, but we should come in order to bring other people. Now, at the Easter extravaganza, I'm going to present the gospel, but usually it doesn't take people just one time. They need to hear the gospel multiple times. So the Easter extravaganza, really all it is is an open door for you to step into that person's life and share the good news of redemption. 
I want you to think about who you're going to invite. And then I want you to think about how are you going to follow up with them? The nice thing is, if you all come to the church and have fun together, it's really easy when you see them a week later to ask, what'd you think? Did you hear anything interesting there? You, you get open doors to begin to talk about the gospel. You get to begin to share the good news of what God has redeemed you from. That's what this event is all about. Sharing the good news of redemption that only comes through Jesus Christ. He is the only hope for our neighbors, coworkers, friends, family. Okay, so be thinking about who you're going to invite. That's the most important thing I want you to do. Second thing, we do need a lot of help to pull this thing off. It's a pretty big endeavor that we take each year. So there's a form in your bulletins. Looking to see if I have it with me. Green form. Here we go. We need lots of help to pull this thing off. There's a green form in your bulletin. If you are willing to help us to pull off Easter extravaganza, if you'll just fill this out, you can fill it out right after I pray or right now. Um, fill it out. Tell us what you would like to help with. And then there will be deacons. They're at the doors at the back of the room. Just hand it to them. Hand it to the men at the back of the room and we'll get you signed up. We would love to have you guys help. Now, whether you can help us for the event or not, uh, we would love everyone to help us with eggs and candy. We need lots of plastic eggs, lots of candy that's not chocolate. I don't really get that, why we can't have chocolate. Um, But non-chocolate candy and plastic Easter eggs, we need like hundreds or thousands of them because we do three big hunts. So over the next few weeks, if you guys will bring plastic eggs and non-chocolate candy up to the church when you come on Sunday morning, you can drop it off here uh, starting today or next week. So we'd love to have you guys help. Okay, uh, let me close by taking us before the Lord in prayer. I want us to go before the Lord and thank him for the redemption that he's offered. But then again, guys, I really want to challenge you. Take this seriously. Please be thinking about who can you share this good news with? Who can you tell about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, we come before you. And first and foremost, we want to admit we are weak and helpless people. Lord, we are not as strong as we think we are. Lord, without you, we would have absolutely no help. We would have absolutely no hope. We would be stone cold dead in danger of your eternal wrath. Lord, we are desperate for you. How great and how gracious you are. Lord, we're the ones who've sinned. We're the ones who've rebelled. We deserve your wrath. We deserve our slavery to sin. All of these things that have come upon the human race, it's our fault, Lord. Thank you that in your grace and in your love, you have paid the ultimate price of redemption. You've sent your own son, Jesus, who willingly, out of love, stepped in our place. He went to the cross in our place. He took our punishment in our place. Thank you for his willingness. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his sacrifice that has made redemption possible, Lord. Thank you for giving us hope over sin, over Satan, and over death. Lord, I pray right now for anyone in this room who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, please, Lord, open their eyes. Please peel back the veil that Satan has put over them. Help them to see the beauty and truth and simplicity of the gospel. Please, Lord. And for all the rest of us, Lord, please give us hearts that reach out to those who don't yet know Jesus. Help us to be sharing our own stories of redemption. Help us to be bold, Lord, for you. Help us to be bold with the gospel. I pray that you would lead us to invite people to Easter extravaganza. I pray that we would be willing to share our testimonies, Lord. Help us to be bold with the gospel. Thank you again, Lord. Everything good in our lives we owe to you. Thank you so much for the hope we have through redemption. In the name of your son, Jesus, who's made it possible, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.